Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. It's been a big week for California. Uh, I want to focus on what we said yes to as a state. We said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. We said yes to ending this pandemic. As you know, my opponent, Governor Gavin Newsom. Come on. Let's, let's, let's be gracious. Let's be gracious in defeat. We may have lost the battle, but we are going to win the war. You know, these false claims had completely captured the entire narrative of this election. And, you know, the people who really lose out are the election officials. They are the frontline workers of democracy. And they're the ones... Another crazy week in a crazy California summer. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. start our show today with a song that reflects that zany vibe of California and explores the dissonance between the California dream and the reality of living in the Golden State today. It's from Oakland-based artist Fantastic Negrito. And I asked him to paint a picture for me of the moment the lyrics came to him. I remember, um, it was like I said, that day of the red sky, it was uh, extremely surreal and it felt apocalyptic and it felt like a message. It felt like, you know, the something greater than us was speaking. And I just stood there and I was just looking at like this blood, blood red sun, bloodshot sun. And the sky was this orange hue. Walked back in and got my guitar and sat out there for a little while. And I guess, you know, the riff just came to me. And then I wanted to tell the story of what was happening in the moment. 
I mean, for an artist, that day was just extremely inspiring. You know, everything is inspiring, whether it's um, you know, George Floyd or Apocalyptic Sun or gentrification or extreme happiness and exuberance or homes being over a million bucks in Oakland. It's everything's inspiring. Yeah, you know what strikes me? This is such a a song about some really bleak stuff. I mean, you got wildfire smoke and climate change and, you know, this the world feeling upside down. But then, like, the rhythm of this song is so joyous and so uplifting. And I just wonder how you balance those things. It's interesting. I've been getting that back from people. Someone said it's the happiest... <laughs> climate change song ever I think I'm just going with this visceral energy that I'm that I'm feeling you know this is life and life is everything the full spectrum it's life and death and stress and happiness and joy and birth and um, climate change and fires and police brutality and family dinners you know, I want to live the full spectrum of this life that I'm afforded to live, this opportunity that I have every day to contribute, exist, agitate, enlighten, disappoint. I think I live in that free fall of emotion. I, I, I want to be there. I mean, one of the lyrics is, you know, I got so much on my mind, right? And don't we all right now? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, we were once seen as like the place to be, California. The dreamland, the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. And it is a beautiful place. We just have challenges right now. So that doesn't mean that we abandon a retreat. I mean, that's not what I do. I love this place and, you know, how can I be of assistance? <laughs> I think there is something about like getting us through these days, you know, and figuring out the small joys. Yeah, because the small joys are really big joys. You know, I, I come from Southern people. All of my mama's relatives go back to Virginia. I think a lot of my attitude comes from spending those summers and those Thanksgiving with, with my Virginia folks who are all very elderly people. And I was younger, they were in their 90s and I was just hanging out with them. And I remember we are talking about the blues and spirituals and I was young, I didn't really even care about the blues. But I remember one of them saying, you know, white folks thought we were sad. We weren't sad, I remember that. That means, hey, things are dismal, things are tough, there are obstacles, but we're gonna keep on moving here. We're gonna use the expression of, you know, foot stops, hand claps, whatever we got to do, we're going to make it through this. You know, I, I'm here now because of the kind of courage my ancestors probably faced under fire. That's really the future of the state, the country, of all of us, the world, is that we embrace possibilities you know affordable housing yeah that can be done if we want it to be done i think containing fires you know global warming climate change like i think it can
can be done. If someone can have their own private satellite that we see up in the sky and people can take trips to the moon, I mean, I think we can do anything. I think when I wrote the song and why people are like, wow, it's, you know, talking about all this, these, this morbid issues in this happy beat is um, my message is optimism. You know, my, my message is, is clinging to possibility in the face of disaster and some of the things that challenge us the most. My message is that we find a way, that we find the will. It can, it must, and it will be done. Oakland-based artist Fantastic Negrito with his new single, Rolling Through California. When you've been living in California undocumented and you're finally able to become a legal resident, it can be a huge relief. That's what one man in the Central Valley city of Los Banos was hoping he would feel. He followed the rules and he went back to Mexico for the final step to apply for his green card. An interview at the U.S. consulate. His wife and his kids expected him back in a week or two. But as reporter Zadie Stavely of EdSource tells us, that's not what happened. On a Saturday afternoon at the Ruiz house, the grill is sizzling with carne asada. Armanda Ruiz and her four kids are sitting down to eat. The five of them laugh and tease each other about who likes their meat most burned. This family is tight-knit, but to the kids, it feels like there's a hole in the home, a dad-shaped hole. For us, there's like this space where he used to be, but he's not there anymore. And like, every time you come home, you're just like, oh, I feel like something's missing. That's 19-year-old Nathan. The something missing is his stepdad, Jose Luis Ruiz Arevalos. He's been stuck in Mexico for the past two years since he went back to apply for his green card. There are reminders of him everywhere in the cozy trailer. The family photos along the hallway, the triple bunk bed he built so three kids could share a room. Jose has helped raise Nathan and his brother Ignacio and sister Elena since they were little. And 11 years ago, he and their mom Armanda had another daughter together, their little sister Priscila. We all love him as an actual father because he basically raised us. He's my papa. So it was very tough. We haven't even like seen him for a long time. We only video chat with him. Papi! Bien? The video calls keep this family close, even though Jose is in Hermosillo, Sonora, a thousand miles away. Priscila shows her dad a drawing she did of a tiger. Sometimes, 17-year-old Ignacio asks him how to unclog the toilet or how to change the oil in the car. The oldest, Elena, keeps him updated on her job. 
Squished between her kids on the couch is their mom, Armanda, who keeps the whole family together. <laughs> Armanda is a U.S. citizen. When she married Jose, she wanted to apply for a green card for her husband. But it's not that easy. Jose had been living here without papers since his parents brought him from Mexico as a teenager, 30 years ago. Under current immigration law, if you cross the border without papers, you have to leave the country to apply for a green card. And you can be banned from coming back for 10 years, even if you're married to a U.S. citizen. There is one way around that ban. If you can prove your absence would cause extreme hardship for your U.S. citizen spouse or parent. In Armanda's case, the hardship was clear. Yo no tenía ingresos. She explains she can't work because she has a full-time job caring for two children with disabilities. Nathan has struggled with severe depression. Priscila was born prematurely with major medical problems. Without Jose and his income, they would really suffer. The government approved the waiver, and the couple thought they had all their paperwork in order. Jose didn't make much money as a handyman, so they followed the rules and found a sponsor, a family friend who made more, and signed papers saying he would support them if needed. In May of 2019, Jose left for Mexico, expecting to return with a green card. What he didn't know is that the Trump administration had recently moved to make it a lot tougher for low-income immigrants to become legal residents, expanding something called the public charge rule. That's an old rule meant to exclude people if they're likely to become completely dependent on government aid. But under Trump, it swept up a lot more people. And so we began hearing anecdotes of denials um, in a space where we had never seen denials before. Um, over issues that had never cropped up before in the public charge space. That's Erin Quinn. She's senior staff attorney at the Immigrant Legal Resource Center in San Francisco. She says it happened to a lot of people, out of the blue. It seemed like officials were looking for reasons to deny people like Jose. At the consulate, officers started asking questions they had never asked before. Well, I want you to prove that you actually know the person that signed your sponsorship. I want you to show me that your sponsor can pay. I want to know what benefits your family members are using in the United States. Jose never used any public benefits, but his kids, all U.S. citizens, did get some help from the government. Because Priscila, the youngest, has disabilities, she gets supplemental security income. The others had gotten food stamps and Medi-Cal. Before President Trump changed the public charge rule, those things wouldn't have counted against Jose. And having a sponsor like Jose's friend would have been enough proof he wouldn't become a burden on the government. But not anymore. The consulate officers told Jose he would need another sponsor. And instead of waiting for him to turn in the new paperwork, they canceled the waiver that would let him return home to California. Jose felt that his world had broken into a million pieces. Para que mejor me entienda, nunca he estado en la cárcel, pero me imagino que hacía de ser la cárcel. I've never been in jail, says Jose, but I think it must feel like this. He spoke to me over Zoom from Sonora. Que le quitan a uno todo. Desde familia, 
desde su personalidad, todo se lo quitan a uno. They take everything from you, he says. Your family, your personality, everything. Before the Trump changes to the public charge rule, barely 3,000 people a year were denied entry because officials doubted they would be able to support themselves. In 2019, the year Jose got stuck in Mexico, a record 21,000 people were denied, seven times as many as before. President Biden has since reversed the Trump policy, and Jose and Armanda are applying again for another waiver to see if he can come home to his family. But they're still separated. What hurts Jose most is watching his kids' plans for college unravel. Y lo más feo que siento, pues que le echan ganas a los estudios ellos. Y les estoy cortando las alas. My kids really put their heart into their studies, he says. I feel like I'm clipping their wings. With Jose unable to come home, the family was left without any income. Elena, the oldest, went to work and dropped out of UC Merced. She's the first in her family to ever go to college. She was afraid that if she dropped out, she might never go back. But she didn't know what else to do. So counselors usually advise me to like try to stay in school, but they didn't really understand that I was the only one that was able to work. Elena applied for dozens of jobs. She worked at a tomato packing plant, at Big Five Sporting Goods as a cashier, and last year with the U.S. Census Bureau. But she needed a job with stable benefits. So she decided to join the Army Reserve. She thought if she could support the family, her younger siblings could follow their dreams. Well, because I'm the oldest. Like, I'm like the forefront. So I don't want them to, like, get pressured, too. I'd rather just, like, take off some of the pressure so when they go to school, they don't have to worry about it. But Elena's brothers are considering putting off their dreams. Nathan took a job at the tomato plant and enrolled in community college part-time. Ignacio is a high school senior. Last year, he had a 4.6 grade point average, all A's, including in four advanced placement classes. He recently got a letter from Harvard encouraging him to apply. I thought about college, but what I'm really thinking about is maybe a vocational education so that I can get a degree and also an internship. I don't want to go out of state so that I have close proximity to my family. Jose has been gone now for more than two years. The family still doesn't know when he might be able to return. And the years of separation can't be undone. Elena wants to take classes again when she returns from basic training. She hopes she'll one day get her degree. But right now, she says, it's just not the right time. I think my dream would just be my family to be together. We try our hardest. We just have to keep hoping. In June, Armanda and the kids drove to visit Jose in Mexico. It was a rare chance for the family to be together before Elena headed to basic training. They went to the beach, a first for some of the kids, and waded into the ocean, playing in the waves. From the sand, Armanda watched and took a video with her phone. In it, her husband and her children walk toward the horizon. They jump over wave after wave coming at them, all together for the moment. For the California Report, I'm Zadie Stavely.
Zadie's story was produced in collaboration with EdSource. Jennifer Molina contributed to the reporting. Of course, we've been marking the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks this month. And hearing all those tributes and commemorations got me thinking about where I was 20 years ago. I was a first-year journalism student at Berkeley, a brand-new reporter. And I wanted to find out how the backlash against South Asians, my own community, was affecting young people. So I went over to Berkeley High School, and I ended up writing a piece about these inspiring teenagers there for a publication called Asian Week. Here's a little of what I wrote. South Asian students said they had faced taunting from their peers and in some instances had been followed home from campus. Several reported that a teacher had failed to intervene when his class repeatedly blamed a Muslim student for the attacks on the World Trade Center. One of the young women I met and featured in my article was 17-year-old Fatima Shah. I decided to track her down 20 years later, and I asked her to meet up with me in front of her old high school. Hello! (laughs) I want to give you a hug. I saw you when you were 17. Yeah, a long time ago, right? (laughs) You're like, not a high school student. No, no, I'm here. I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot. I forgot so much to be a high school student. I know, they look so young, huh? So young, and it's so nice to be here and see that energy. Now Fatima's 37, but she's still got the same youthful glow she did when I met her 20 years ago. She'd come to California from Pakistan just a few years before on her 13th birthday, and her family of seven was living in a tiny apartment in Berkeley. Her dad was supporting them as a busboy in a restaurant, and he agreed to let his daughters go to school as long as they didn't wear Western clothes. He wanted them to put on their traditional salvar kameez. You know, Berkeley High is so crowded, and walking down the hallways, I felt like I stand out, and it makes you vulnerable. That time, I remember hearing a lot of my classmates will tease me, uh, ask questions like, oh, so where are you hiding Bin Laden? Even before 9-11, Fatima remembers other students calling her dirty Muslim, even spitting on her. And I will spend a lot of my time thinking and just wishing to God, oh my gosh, I will, I will do anything to just fit in. In Berkeley, right, where everybody assumes is such a liberal place, such a multiracial accepting place, but it's not all the time. Not all the time. You know, people want to find the enemy and anyone that looks like the enemy, they become very easily targeted, even in communities like Berkeley. After 9-11, Fatima's dad kept his daughters home from school. My dad would read the news. A Sikh man got attacked at the gas station. A Muslim woman with their hijabs were pulled. But then, a student group Fatima was part of, called Youth Together, came to visit her family at their house. And they convinced her parents to let her and her sister go back to school and be part of a first-of-its-kind teach-in about South Asian culture for the high school. Back then, I remember taking notes for my article as I watched the students perform to Nusrat Patele Khan. It's music my own grandparents treasured. The kids also served up food, like Fatima's mom's biryani, for her classmates to try. And then they went to different English classes to do teach-ins for their peers. 
people will ask me question like, um, so you're Muslim, but why don't you cover your hair? Like it created that comfortable environment for students to ask questions that they normally will not feel comfortable asking. Like questions that were silly, but they were, you know, they needed clarification. They were curious about, and it bridged a lot of um, gaps between students and uh, my peers. And I have gone to middle school with some of the kids and they never had the opportunity to ask these questions. And here we are in high school and this national crisis is bringing us together. I watched Fatima and the other South Asian kids, Sikh, Hindu, and Muslim, lead their classmates through an exercise to help them understand scapegoating. Here's what they did. They taped a sign on another kid's back that read terrorist, and they asked the students in the class to all shout out different stereotypes. Foreigner, box cutter, raghead, Aladdin. I remember interviewing other students of color, Black and Latinx kids, who said they felt so moved by that exercise, and it helped them see their classmates in a whole new light. There was a connection that other students were realizing the South Asian community also experiences racism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it looked different, but the the discriminations, the hate, the, the need to feel safety, and the feeling of being alienated is shared experiences. Standing in front of Berkeley High today, Fatima and I look at a printout of my article from 20 years ago. There's this picture I took of the students, some of them in turbans, some in silver kameez, some in jeans. And they're all leaning on each other, looking really cool, wearing these green armbands that they gave out to show solidarity. A sign that they would eat lunch or walk home with South Asian or Muslim students who felt unsafe. A blonde white guy will have it on his backpack, and then African-American girls uh, had it around her wrist, and it really created a community, a, a place for me where I felt safe so that I could be recognized as a source of, like, one of us, not like Fatima, the Pakistani weird girl with the Pakistani traditional clothing. That experience of doing a teach-in, of helping students figure out how to be allies for each other, led Fatima to a career in education, which was something she never expected. She went on to community college and then UC Berkeley, and today she's a counselor at Berkeley Community College. She works with a lot of undocumented students, refugees, English language learners, and helps them figure out their higher education goals, get them into four-year schools, and find jobs. When we were um, in high school, the teaching allowed us to humanize ourselves to our peers. And that connected, created bridges for us. And right now, as an educator, I, I like to humanize my students. What would your message be to you know, a young Fatima today, looking back, sitting here on this campus? I'm quite proud of her. Uh, I, I, I hope to reflect back onto that Fatima because she took challenges, she took risks. And I have to tell that Fatima that everything is gonna be okay. As we watch a new generation of high schoolers eating lunch in front of the campus, I asked Fatima what advice she would give to kids like them today. To become a friend with somebody that looks completely opposite of who they are in every possible way. 
And that is the only way where you learn and you experience growth. Become a friend with a Muslim student uh, that looks completely different than you. Become a friend with uh, ESL students that recently arrived to the country. You learn, oh my gosh, there's so many commonalities in our experiences as teenagers. And yet there's two different planets that we live on. And it's amazing to coexist. Fatima Shah, who became a student activist at Berkeley High School in the weeks following 9-11. Full disclosure, I ended up marrying somebody who later went on to teach at Berkeley High. Another thing I could never have predicted when I first wrote that article back in 2001. And that's it for our show this week. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon, and our show editor this week is Lisa Morehouse. Amanda Font was our director this week, and our engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Taiki Hendricks, Hector Arsate, Nina Sparling, and Susie Racho. And I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 